Well, many of you know, I grew up with three brothers. I'm the oldest of four boys. So you can pray for the PTSD that my mom is experiencing from having raised four boys. Uh, I had uh, my next after me, I was the oldest. So I was number one, Travis was number two, Justin was number three, Jordan was number four. And, and we fought like crazy growing up. I, I mean, bloody, nasty fights growing up in my house. I'll never forget one time on the corner of 83rd in Chicago here in Lubbock, Texas, in one of the houses I grew up in. I was in my driveway. My brother Travis was in the garage. He was mad at me. He was upset at me for some reason. And so he grabs a, a broomstick and he comes charging at me, ready to beat me and to hit me with this broomstick. And I guess because like I watched Karate Kid growing up, I was prepared for this moment and I somehow did a jump kick where I kicked him right in his face and he flew up in the air, like in the matrix or something, you know, and his arms are going back and he slams on the ground and he looks at my dad who is laughing by the way, and says, are you going to do anything about that? And my dad says to him, what do you expect's going to happen when you charge at someone with the broomstick? So happy Father's Day, dad. Thank you for that. Thank you for defending me in that moment. But growing up in my family, we had a lot of issues. We had a lot of, of, of problems. And I would look at uh, my mom or my dad and, and the way they interacted with their brothers and sisters as adults. And I thought, are you crazy? Those are your enemies. Why are you getting along right now? How, how can you possibly get along with your brothers and sisters, with, with your family? I never thought that my brothers and I would be friends. I never thought we would. And we've had our fair share of issues over the years, but, but for a while now and, and today, we are the best of friends. We love hanging out together. We have a great time together. And I never thought that would happen. Now, let, let me, let me kind of take this a step further and ask you a question here. Imagine growing up in a family with a hundred adopted, adopted kids in the same family, a hundred. All the different backgrounds, all the different stories, all the different struggles and issues and fights that would spring up from living in a house with 100 adopted children all under the same roof. Now, now imagine a thousand. What would it like, what would it be like for a thousand adopted kids to be doing life together all under the same roof with all those different backgrounds, all the different stories, all those different, they come together, all the issues that would rise. I mean, just imagine that, just, just picture that with me here for just a second. See, see, it's a picture of the church. Because the scripture says that through the gospel, you and I were orphans and God adopted us all into his family. And so the, the family of God, the church is filled. It's a royal family filled with, in our case, hundreds and hundreds, just even here of adopted kids all under one roof and in the same family. And then if you were to take all the Christians alive right now on the face of the planet, you're talking about millions, billions of adopted kids all in one family. And one day the scripture says that in heaven, there will be billions upon, there will be a crowd so vast, nobody can count that will be worshiping Jesus. All adopted kids under one roof, worshiping the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So if that's who we are, that's our identity now. So then 
How do we deal with all the issues and opinions and brokenness and background and baggage and stories that we all bring into this family? How, how do we deal with that? How do we do family? How do we be the church as hundreds and hundreds, just in this local expression of the church, of adopted kids in the same family. Turn with me to Colossians chapter three. We are going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. If you haven't been here, I invite you to catch up uh, in our, our series, on our app, on our podcasts. Uh, we, we've been going through the book of Colossians verse by verse, and we're inviting you to study and to dive into this book, not just in here, not just by listening, but by engaging these verses in a city group. That's our small groups, that's our small group Bible studies. And so if you're not in a city group, jump on our app, uh, select city groups and, and find a group that works for you. You can also uh, select an option that says start a group for you and your family and, and friends. But, but we want everyone in our church in a city group where you can be connected to the family of God. You can get to know people, they can get to know you and you can study the scripture with one another. We're also inviting you to study the book of Colossians through our daily devotionals on our app. If you download our app, the City Church Love It, click Daily Devos. This week, we'll take you through these same verses we're about to preach through. And we'll provide more commentary, uh, more prayer points and discussion questions and application points for you each day of this week. So, so join our study of Colossians, not just in here, but in our city groups and through our daily devotionals on our app. And here's what we said the theme of the book of Colossians is as a whole. The theme is Christ Supreme. Christ Supreme is the theme. And here's where you fill in the blank uh, on our app. If you click message notes, the points and the verses, everything we'll talk about today is right there for you. And you can fill in the blank with these words here. It's a great way just to engage, not just sit back and watch, but to engage and to participate in our time together. Just fill in the blank there with those words in all caps. Christ Supreme is the theme. And we've said, in summary, that means that Jesus is God's will for your life. He is the supreme will for your life, is a relationship with God through Jesus. When we say Christ is supreme, we're saying he is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our love, our time, our, our money. He's worthy of whatever sacrifice it takes to know him, to be rooted in the body of Christ and to participate in the spread of the gospel, whatever it takes. He is worthy of our devotion, our time, money, our sacrifice. When we say Christ is supreme, we're saying he's sufficient, that he alone is sufficient to fill that void in your heart, the thirst that you have, the hunger that you have. Jesus said, I'm the living water, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never thirst again, you'll never hunger again. Jesus is sufficient to quench that thirst and to meet that hunger. So Christ is supreme in our lives. And so last week we said Christ is supreme to sanctify you, that even spiritual growth and sanctification isn't just about your effort of doing one, two, three, and stop doing this and start doing this. No, it's all in Christ and through Christ that we grow spiritually. And we said we grow in Christ and we are sanctified through grace-driven, Christ-driven, Holy Spirit-driven efforts. It's not one, two, three, it's follow me, Jesus said. And then he will heal and he will clean and he will put back together the things that are broken. This week, here's what I want you to see. Christ is supreme in forming community, a community of faith, a faith family. This is the church. Christ is supreme in forming and uniting a community of 
Christians, when you're born physically, you grow up in your family and you look more and more like your parents. Sorry, kids. But as you grow up, you're going to look more and more like your parents. Okay. So, uh, so in the same way, you're born again spiritually into your spiritual family, the family of God. You're a child of God in the family of God. That's your identity in Christ now. And in the same way, you're born again into your spiritual family. You grow up in a spiritual family and you look more and more like Jesus. We talked about that last week, but this process of sanctification, it happens in community. It happens in the family of faith, not apart from the family of faith. It happens rooted in the community of faith, the, the church, not apart from it. And so that naturally brings up all of our problems and issues that we have with Christians, with, with church people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted into this royal family. So how do we do family with all of these problems, hurts, offenses, and issues that oftentimes, and let's just be real, that always come up within any family, including the family of God. So Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 11, we'll go through verse 17 today. And then next week we'll pick up in 18 and we'll talk about how Christ is supreme in your marriage and Christ is supreme in your parenting and Christ must be supreme as you go to work. Then we'll look at that next week and close out chapter three. But today we're looking at Christ being supreme in forming community. Verse 11, in this new life, Paul says, so again, just like at the beginning of chapter three, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, then you're going to love Jesus and follow Jesus and hate sin and repent from sin and run towards holiness if you've been raised with Christ. So we said, you, you gotta get your identity first before you, you start getting into application. You, you've gotta get justification first. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago before you starting into application and sanctification. It starts with the relationship with the, Jesus. The gospel is it's done, not I do. It's not one, two, three, it's follow me. That's the gospel, follow Jesus. And then now, if you've been raised with Christ through the gospel and because of the gospel, Paul will say, because it's done, now I do. I do not to be loved by my dad, but because I love my dad, now I want to please him and honor him and obey him because I love him and he loves me. That, that's the sanctification process here. And Paul's gonna start out the same way in this new life. This is our identity. Before we can get to community, the community of believers, the community of faith that we all find ourselves in, before we can talk about that, we're, we're, we gotta know we're talking to Christians here who are in the family, who've experienced this new life in Christ. This is the new covenant. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that in the new covenant, God through the spirit circumcises your heart and he cuts away the sinful nature. He puts his spirit inside of you. And in this new life, he moves you to love him, follow him and obey him from the inside out by changing your heart and giving you new desires and new passions. That's the new covenant. And so this is the new life Paul is talking about. And so in this new life, here's what follows. Just like sanctification follows justification, community always follows this change in identity. If you're a Christian and you have this new life, then what flows from that, the overflow from that is a connection to and living in community. So in this new life, 
Now we're going to talk about what does this community look like? It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. So first of all, he says, it doesn't matter what your, uh, your, your religious perspective, if you're religious, non-religious, if you're a church person or not church person, if you're poor or rich, if you're uh, 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 black, brown, white, wh whatever, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're male or female, those things don't matter anymore. Those things are no longer our primary identity. They're secondary issues and characteristics and traits and attributes, but they are no longer your primary identity if you found new life in Christ. Now, your primary identity is a Christian. It's not sexuality, it's not your financial position, it's not your gender, your, your, your primary identity now is in Christ. Christ now is all that matters and he lives inside of us. And since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, now watch this, here's the command in this new life. You must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. This is the new identity we have in Christ commands us and out of the overflow of this new identity we have in Christ, we make allowance for each other's faults and we forgive anyone, anyone who offends us. Because Paul says, remember, the Lord forgave you. If you're a Christian, the Lord forgave you of your sin and made you right with him through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The Lord forgave you of your sin if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're under sin. The scripture says you're under the wrath of God and you are headed to hell to pay the fine for your sin forever. And, and so I would invite you to give your life to Jesus today. Trust in his payment of your fine on the cross so that you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God and can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you, at any point today, you decide, hey, I wanna give my life to Jesus. Jump on our app. Fill out our connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Christ. But Paul says, remember, the Lord forgave you. So here's, here's the command. You must forgive others. Above all, Paul says, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. God made peace with you through Jesus. You were at war with God. You were God's enemy. But through the gospel of Jesus, God has made peace with you. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, the peace of God rules in my heart. And so I want to be at peace with everybody around because God has made peace with me. I desire to seek peace with everyone around. I'm not contentious. No, I'm making allowance for people's faults. I'm patient with people. I'm humble. I'm kind. I'm tender heart, tender heart. I'm merciful and I'm living in peace because of the peace of God that rules in my heart. And it all, as always, be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other. I want you to key in on that. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. Based on his wisdom, we teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative. This is an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him 
to God the Father. So Paul says, in this new life, the gospel binds us together as members of one body where we practice all of these each other's in a community of faith. So the gospel binds us together as one family, as one body, where we practice love and mercy and patience and forgiveness and allowance and peace. And where we teach each other and counsel each other and we sing together. That, that's what the gospel does. It binds us together as members of one body where we practice these things in a community of faith. So question for you, does this describe your life? Does this describe your life? Are you so rooted in a community of faith, in a community of Christians, where you are practicing all these things in relationship with other followers of Jesus? Does this describe you? And my, my guess is if you say no, or maybe not right now, or maybe it hasn't been, or, or maybe like, no, and, and why would I ever want to do that? My, my, my guess is one of the reasons for that. If we were playing Family Feud right now, the, the top reason that would come up, the number one reason that would come up is because of the people. I, I don't like them. They're, they're annoying. They've hurt me. They've offended me. I, I can't, I don't, I don't like, I don't get along with them. Like it would be because of the people. That would be one of the number one reasons many of us are not rooted in Christian community or have not been rooted in Christian community is because of the people. Now there's a lot of other reasons, our time, priority, uh, our, our, just our spiritual sensitivity, maybe, maybe there's been apathy there. Well, there's a lot of other reasons, but one of the primary reasons I think for some of us that we've rejected Christian community is the people. And in light of that, I want you to consider that Jesus's choice of disciples to follow him is very interesting. Because if he's trying to create this unified body that is bound together to one another, that honors each other, forgives each other, teaches each other, worships it together, and is on mission together, then let me just submit to you that his choice of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector to be two of the disciples that would do life together and walk together and follow Jesus together and be on mission together is very interesting and counterproductive to forming this kind of community. Let, let, let me explain. Simon was from the sect of Judaism called the Zealots. And a zealot wanted to violently overthrow their Roman occupants. But they were, they were insurrectionists. They, they, they were about violence. We will overthrow the Roman government at all costs and Violence is preferred. I mean, <laughs> that was the zealot's way of thinking. We prefer to do this by violence. That, that was the zealots, okay? Matthew, on the other hand, is a tax collector. And his job is to collect taxes from his own people, the Jews, and then give it to his Roman overlords. A tax collector and a zealot. A zealot would look at a tax collector like a traitor and someone to be wiped out and killed for punishment for their sins of treachery against the Jewish people. So 
Jesus is trying to form this faith family, this, this community. And he's starting with these 12 and he chooses a zealot and a tax collector to do life together and to follow him together and to be on mission together. I, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure you could get two polar opposites and there couldn't be two worse choices to do life together with and follow Jesus with and be on mission together with. I mean, how are these two supposed to get along? I mean, Matthew and Simon in their following Jesus would have had completely different ways of doing things. If you put it in today's terms, they would have led their churches completely different. They would be totally different kinds of denominations here. They would have led their churches completely differently. So how is this possible? How is it possible for a zealot and a tax collector to follow Jesus together and be on mission together and to be in the same faith family? How is this possible? Well, it's probably similar to how a Red Raider, a Longhorn, and an Aggie can be in church together, I guess. And um, if you're an Aggie, Rob, Corey, if you're here, I'll speak really slowly, okay, so that you can understand me. That's how we do life together with our Aggie friends, okay? so. How do we do church together when we come with such baggage and issues and differences of backgrounds and opinion, all, all these things? How do we do life together? Paul says we're going to do life together in the gospel-centered community. In a gospel-centered community. It's Christ Jesus who forms his body as the head of the church and unifies through the gospel of Jesus, unifies a community, a faith family together. So we're going to break this down and talk about what a gospel community, a gospel centered church looks like and how we live this out and how we do church together. And number one, a gospel centered community, a gospel centered church practices gospel centered equality. Gospel-centered equality. Look with me in verse 11. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric or uncivilized. That would be poor and rough around the edges and not able to talk the way that, that, that we talk. So, so, or, or slave or free. We'll talk more about Paul's use of the term slave next week because what he says next week about slaves and masters and all this kind of seems very offensive just kind of from a cursory reading. So we'll have to dive into that next week and explain that next week. But Paul says whether you're slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. A gospel-centered community practices gospel-centered equality. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says this, that he, Jesus, united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. The gospel tears down all the walls of hostility between us. And whether you're Black, brown, white, man, woman, poor, rich, liberal, conservative, whatever the wall is that this culture tries to put up or that we allow to come up between us or that we even put up between, the gospel tears down all those walls and it makes us one family, one body. It unifies us together. 
And so Paul is saying, you got to understand, Paul is saying something to his culture that is so incredibly offensive. And we'll get more into this next week, but, but whether you're a man or woman doesn't matter. You're, you're equal in value and worth and standing in the eyes of God. Are you slave? Are you free? You are equal in the eyes of God. There, there, there is no difference. Are you black, brown, or white? Those things don't matter. Those things are no longer our primary identities anymore because we are all equal in Christ. And no one in their pride exalts their race, their gender, their financial position, their education. We, we don't exalt those things in our own lives because that, that puts up a wall. That's, that's pride. And it's the humiliation of the gospel in Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that tears down all these walls. And so we not only oppose segregation, racism, and prejudice as completely evil and satanic. We not only oppose that, at the City Church, we are seeking and praying to be a multi-ethnic church that sees, celebrates, and honors the image of God in every gender, race, financial set, whatever it is. We are seeking to be a multi-ethnic church. So I've said it to our members that, that go through our membership class. My, my heart, my prayers is that we will eventually find a place permanently to meet downtown because I want us to be a multi-ethnic church. I've been seeking coaching on what it looks like for us to become a multi-ethnic church. I have a friend who's got a PhD in helping churches become, uh, he lives in North Carolina, uh, that helps churches become multi-ethnic. And I've engaged coaching from him. And one of the first places that I know and I realize we have to start, and we've already been doing this, is we have to get intentional with hiring and raising up and putting on our stages and putting on our board of elders and everywhere in our church, people of different ethnicities. And so we are intentionally doing that. We are intentionally pursuing that because we don't just oppose segregation, racism, and prejudice as evil. We are praying and seeking to be multi-ethnic. And so that's the, that's the direction we're headed. And you, and, you, and you need to know that because I believe the most segregated hour, it's been said on, is Sunday, Sunday morning and all of, all of the week and the entire week, the most segregated hour in our country is on Sunday morning. That is an abomination. That is not godly. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-gospel. And we are seeking to change that and to remedy that. And part of that is our own repentance in this and change of heart to seek for this and to pray for this because we believe the gospel calls for us to do so. Ephesians 2 says that it's the gospel. It's Jesus that unites us together as one and it reconciles us together as one body. Two, a gospel-centered community practices gospel-centered allowance. Gospel-centered allowance. Look with me in 12 through 15. God chose us to be the holy people he loves. So you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you, remembering that God forgave you. So you must forgive others. And it's this love. 
It's this forgiveness. It's this gospel-centered allowance that binds us together and produces harmony. You see, here's what you've got to understand. God loves his bride. The groom loves his bride. That's the church. That's you and I. And all of her colors, forms, sizes, messes, failures, and issues, God loves his bride. It says in Hebrews that God is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of his bride. It says in Hebrews that Jesus wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So Jesus isn't ashamed of his bride. Jesus isn't a critic of his bride. No, Jesus forgives his bride and cleanses his bride. He loves his bride. In spite of her performance, God loves his bride. And so as the body of Christ, Christ is the head, we are the body. As the body of Christ, the family of God, through the gospel and because of the gospel, you and I are called to allow forgive and to be patient one another and to love each other and to forgive each other because of what God has done for us. It's a gospel centered allowance of each other's faults, forgiveness when someone hurts us. And now I know saying that many of you, myself included, have been abused. You've been hurt. You've been offended by a church or by someone in the church, a church person. And that usually results in leaving your church and going to find a new church or leaving the church altogether or becoming a critic of the church, leaving the church and then becoming a critic of the church. And if that's you, first of all, I just wanna say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that people like me, that churches like ours have hurt you or have offended you. I wanna say I'm sorry because I've been in that place and it's very difficult. That's a very difficult pain when a church, when a pastor, when a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, when they hurt you, it, it's, a, it's just a different level of pain. And so I wanna say, I'm sorry, I, I've been there. I've had pastors and church people hurt me and offend me. And I know how bad that hurts and how much that can scar you and push you away from Christ. And so I wanna say, I'm sorry to you. But then I wanna ask you a couple of questions. And the first one is this. If you are hurt by or offended by someone in your physical family, my guess is, is you are upset with that person in your family and that relationship with that family member is hurt or it's scarred or there's a separation there between you and that family member and sometimes rightfully so. But my guess is you haven't abandoned your entire family because of the actions of one family member. That's just my guess. 
You're, you're still connected to some of the family, maybe just not that one person who offended you or hurt you. So I would just invite you to consider that. Secondly, my next question for you is this. Are you treating the bride, the church, in a way that God has not treated you? Are you treating the bride in a way that God has not treated you? Because you see, God, because of his great love for you, in his mercy and in his grace, sent his son Jesus to die for you, Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, we were his enemies. We were rebels against God. And because God loved us and wanted to be in relationship with us, he moved towards us and sent his son Jesus to die for us in spite of our performance. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but God loves us anyways and still, even as Christians, even with all of our issues and even with all of our brokenness, God loves his bride and he is not ashamed, Hebrews says, to be called our God. And Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brothers and sisters. So, so, so let me ask you, are you treating the bride, are you treating the church in a way that God has not treated you? And if so, then that is not a gospel response to the hurt or to the offense that you've experienced. And if you're not responding in light of the gospel with a gospel-centered allowance and forgiveness that oftentimes puts you in the seat of the Pharisee, where you begin to say, well, they're like this and they're like that. And I'm not like this and I'm not like that. I do this and I do that. And, and they don't do this and they don't do that. That's the seat of the Pharisee. Or, or maybe it's put you in the seat of the critic. Psalm 1 says that the, the, the seat of the critic, the mocker, the, the scoffer is not a seat of joy or flourishing. The seat of the critic, the mocker, the scoffer is a seat of death and destruction. So are you treating the bride, are you treating the church in a way that God has not treated you. Now I know you might be saying, what about the abuse? What about the sin of pastors and leaders in churches and denominations? What, what about the confession and repentance that needs to happen by pastors, churches, leaders, and denominations? We're going to get to that here in just a second. But regardless of those things, and in spite of those things, I want to point you to Joseph who after his brothers abused him and sold him into slavery, Joseph forgave them, cared for them, and provided for them. And then Jesus, the greater Joseph, the one whom Joseph was pointing to, Jesus was abused, mocked, beaten, and as he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So when we are offended, when we are hurt, we look to the cross. We look to the cross of our Lord and Savior saying, Father, forgive them. 
They don't know what they're doing. And we realize that God has forgiven us of so much. And, and, and so I, I can't help but extend forgiveness. You, you see, when, when, when you become the critic of the church and when you run from the church and you start criticizing the church, you're, you're, you're actually saying that someone has offended you worse than your offense to God. And that's not true. You must understand you have offended God far worse than anyone could ever offend or hurt you. In the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus talks about a man whose master forgave him of his infinite debt, something he could never pay back. And the man walks away, he's excited, he's joyful, he's thankful, but then his friend who owes him some money comes in and says, hey, I can't pay back the debt. And he throws the man in prison for not being able to pay back the debt. And Jesus says that man was an evil servant. He had been forgiven of so much, but he couldn't forgive his brother. And so Jesus says that man will be thrown into the lake of fire or there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying there is that man is not a Christian because a Christian who's experienced the overwhelming grace and mercy and forgiveness of God cannot help but extend that grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so I know some of you are here and the reason you are here is because of the gospel's work in your life to make allowance, to forgive and to give the family of God another chance. And I just wanna say, I applaud you for giving us, for giving the family of God another chance. And so I, I invite you to, to, get, to get rooted now as you've maybe taken that step to come back from your hurt or from that offense. The gospel's working your heart to bring you back into the fold, into the family. And now it's time to take some next steps and get rooted in your family of faith because that's where maturity happens and Christian growth and spiritual maturity happens in a gospel-centered community where we make allowance for each other's faults and we forgive one another. And as we do so, we grow spiritually. Third, the gospel-centered community practices gospel-centered teaching. Gospel-centered teaching. Look with me in verse 16. 16, it says this, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. So let's talk about gospel-centered teaching. Three things. First of all, gospel-centered teaching is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It points to Jesus. Jesus said, all of the scripture is about me and points to me. Jesus said the law, the prophets, the Psalms, was, it was all about me. It was all pointing to me, Jesus said. And then we have the gospels, which are about Jesus. And then we have the New Testament letters, which are all about Jesus and Christian community. And then we have the book of Revelation, which is about the return of Jesus. All of the scripture is about Jesus. And so when you come to church, you should hear a lot about Jesus because all of the scriptures about him. So gospel centered teaching is all about Jesus. And we point to Jesus in everything. Number two, gospel centered teaching comes from biblically and spiritually gifted, qualified leaders in 
First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one, Paul gives the qualifications for an elder, a leader in the church. And so if you are going to church and there are no biblically qualified elders or leaders that are teaching you the scripture and pointing you to Jesus, then it's not a church. Some people say, well, where two or three are gathered, uh, there Jesus is also. Yeah, Jesus is there, but that's not a church. And, and, and you're, you're taking those verses out of context anyways. The, those verses are actually in the context of church discipline where someone's confronted over their sin. But, but sure, yes, that, that is true. And in the presence of two or three believers in Jesus, the, the, the presence of God is there as you fellowship together. But that's not a church. You, you need biblically qualified elders that are leading your church and teaching you the scripture and pointing you to the gospel. Otherwise, it's not a church. Third, gospel-centered teaching, this is interesting, is teaching and counseling each other. Look what it says in verse 16. We teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. So we teach and counsel each other with the word of God. So it doesn't just come from me to you, it comes from you to me and you to each other. We teach and counsel each other with the word of God. So you can already see, even in these first few, that you've gotta be in a circle, in a small group, we call them city groups, so that you can practice this gospel-centered allowance and gospel-centered teaching, and there's going to be more here in just a second, but, but to counsel each other means that you're talking with other people about the scripture. So that requires you to be in a group that's studying the scripture together. If you're going to teach each other, if you're going to counsel each other with the word of God. So, so watch this, check this out. Confrontation, confession, and repentance are expected in Christian community. In a gospel-centered community, there will be confrontation. There will be then confession as we confront each other with the word of God. Then there will be confession and then there will be repentance. Now, I know some of you are like, but didn't Jesus say not to, to judge me? You know, I've got a tattoo or my friend's got a tattoo. It says only God can judge me, you know, whatever. That's false. That is false. If you are a Christian, the church is supposed to judge you. Now, the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter seven, judge is an eternal condemnation. And so he says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't just write them off. The opposite. Then he talks about Matthew seven, how you confront another believer who's living in sin. And he says this, take the log out of your own eye, then, you will be able to help your brother remove the speck of sawdust from his eye. So, so why does Jesus say it like that? Well, when I remove the log from my, own, from my own eye, when I judge myself first, I'm broken over my own sin and it gives me a spirit of humility and brokenness and love and mercy and patience as I confront my brother or sister who's living in sin. And then I'm gonna sit at a kitchen table or I'm gonna sit in a living room and we're gonna talk and I'm gonna talk about my concern for them in brokenness and with humility because of the way they are living their lives. 
And so Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see, and then you will be able to help your brother or sister with a speck of sawdust in their eye. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, when a believer is caught in sin or when a believer sins against you, you are to go and confront them over that sin. Paul would say it like this. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside the church? The answer is yes. In Christian community, it is expected that there will be confrontation, confession, and repentance. And so again, that just means that you're going to be in a circle where you know people well enough to be able to hurt them, for them to hurt you, to know what's going on in their lives, for them to know what's going on in your life, and for you to be able to confront each other with humility and brokenness over sin. And then prayerfully and hopefully you experience confession of sin and repentance from sin. But these things are expected in gospel-centered community. We teach and counsel each other. And this goes for leaders too. This goes for elders, pastors. They are to be confronted over their sin. That's why I believe in a plurality of eldership, a plural eldership. So we have a board of elders here. I'm not, I'm not the only one. We have a board here and they can hold me accountable. They could fire me. They can confront me over sin. And if you ever had a problem, you could probably go to one of them and express your concern because we're to teach and counsel each other. I'm not above this. None of us are. There's no pastor. There's no church. There's no denomination that is not to be held accountable for their sin and then to result in confession and repentance from that sin. Paul confronted Peter over his own hypocrisy. So one church leader confronting another church leader, Peter, for his hypocrisy, Paul confronts him and Peter repents from his sin. This is a life-giving process. It's not condemnation, it's for our salvation and it's for our joy and our flourishing that we engage in this. One commentator said about this, these verses, God intends Christian behavior watch this, to be reinforced and upheld by the friendship, company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. Not to appreciate this is to lapse into arrogant independence. Another commentator said, if you're not in gospel-centered community where there's gospel-centered teaching and counseling of each other with the word of God, then there are no objective voices calling us towards balance. Our highs tend to be higher. Our lows tend to be lower. Our point of view becomes clouded and things tend to seem worse or better than they really are. Your spiritual growth depends on you being in gospel-centered community where we teach and we counsel each other. Fourth, gospel-centered community practices gospel-centered worship. Gospel-centered worship. In verse 16, it says this, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. We're supposed to sing together. Now, you can sing on your own with your AirPods or you can sing on your own with, at your couch or in your recliner, sometimes watching church online if you're sick or if there's some sort of global pandemic for a season, okay? That, that's okay for a, a season, but you and I are called to teach each other and to sing together. That requires us being in the same room with one another where we sing 
together. This is talking about a corporate worship experience and it's indicative of a gospel-centered community that we sing together. And so a few quick things about gospel-centered worship. Number one, gospel-centered worship is to God. When you leave church and you say, well, uh, worship was good or worship was bad or I liked worship or I didn't like worship or, or I didn't get anything out of worship today, you've got the total wrong idea of what worship is. It's not about you. When we worship, we're, we're worshiping God. It's about him. It's about praising him. It's about lifting him up. It's not about you. Now there's some things that happen to you and in you as a result of God-centered, gospel-centered worship, but it's about him. It's not even about what's going on in my life. God's gonna work in my heart because of what's going on in my life as I worship him and acknowledge him as sovereign and in control. And as, God, as I lift him up, God's gonna do some things in my heart. But worship is about him. Secondly, that gospel-centered worship that focuses on God will change your heart. It won't always change your circumstances, but it will change your heart and it will change your perspective on those circumstances. And then finally, gospel-centered worship will comfort you. It will comfort you in your suffering, in your trial, in your mourning. Gospel-centered, God-centered worship will comfort you as you're encouraged to put your faith and your trust in a sovereign, loving God, regardless of what you're suffering and what your trial may look like. And gospel-centered corporate worship will always lift you up. It's why you gotta be here. It's not just for you. There are some people in this room today and they would like to sing, but they can't. They are suffering. And they would like to sing and maybe they're, they're singing in their heart, but, but they just, can't. Your singing lifts them up. And as we sing together about the glory of God, it lifts us up and it encourages our hearts. Gospel-centered worship, it draws us together. And then last, a gospel-centered community practices gospel-centered mission. Gospel-centered mission. Verse 17 says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. You're an ambassador. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus. So we don't fish alone, we fish together. Jesus said, you follow me, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. And we don't fish alone, we fish together. We make disciples together. We serve together. We're on mission together. And when we're doing all of the things that we just talked about, when we're practicing all the things that we just talked about, the overflow is mission. In Acts chapter two, when Luke describes the community of faith in the early church, 2, 42 through 47, when he talks about their relationships and their community, he ends it with this in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You see, that should be indicative of every gospel-centered community that we are sharing Christ with our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and we're praying for them and we're inviting them to church because that's just the overflow of gospel-centered community. It's gospel-centered mission. We want other people to know the gospel. We want other people to know about Jesus. And so when we're doing all of these things, the overflow should always be gospel-centered mission. But when we're not doing all of the things that we just talked about, the mission is compromised and we lose our voice because the culture begins to say, 
You're living in sin. You're living in hypocrisy. You're not practicing what you preach. You're not practicing what you sing. And so we're going to call foul. And we don't believe you because what you say and what you sing really isn't true in your life. But when we're doing all the things that we just talked about and we're being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, then our voice, we, we have a platform. The church is losing its voice in our society and our culture at a rapid pace. And it's because we haven't been doing all the things that come before this. Gospel-centered mission is an overflow of all the things we just talked about. And if you're not rooted in gospel-centered community, then you're robbing yourself of joy and flourishing and you're robbing us because we need you. You're our brother, you're our sister. Here's the big idea for today. Those who are joined to Christ are joined together. Those who are joined to Christ are joined together. Marcus Barth in his book, Jews and Gentiles said this, justification in Christ is not an individual miracle happening to this person or that person, which each person then may seek to possess for himself. Rather, justification by grace is this miracle of joining together of this and that person, of the near and the far, of the good and the bad, the high and the low, the liberal and the fundamentalist. It is a social event. No one is joined to Christ except together with a neighbor. If you're joined to Christ, you're joined together. Through Christ, you've been born again into a spiritual royal family. You've been adopted into this family and this is your primary identity. Not your sexuality, your nationality, your ethnicity, your financial position or your gender. Your primary identity is a child of God in the family of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And so when you run from the church, your primary identity, your primary family, because of maybe one of those secondary issues, you're actually running from Jesus. And I know some of you would say, well, I'm not running from the church. I'm just running from this church or that church or that form of church. Let me just remind you of Simon and Matthew, completely different, would do church completely differently would construct completely different forms of church. But Christ united them together and bound them together as one in one family. Because see, your identity is Christian or not. We come up with all these forms and constructs and denominations. If you have given your life to Jesus and you believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, then you are a Christian and you are my brother or you are my sister. Your identity is Christian or not Christian. There's really no such things as forms of churches and constructs and denominate. We form these things, but in the kingdom of God, those walls are all torn down. We are one family, we are one body. And so I would just invite you today to take a, a baby step back. If you've been away, maybe you're watching online right now, just take a baby step back and come in and join us once again. Through the power of the gospel, we invite you to join us once again. Maybe you have taken that baby step back and you've been joining us, then I would invite you to take a, a, another baby step. 
Start coming regularly. Start looking at where you could serve and volunteer, whether it's in kids ministry or greeting or, 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 or media or, or whatever that might look, youth, whatever it might look like. Start serving and participating and giving back to your family. Maybe consider becoming a member of our church. Go to our next membership lunch next week and see what that's all about. You can sign up for that on our app. Maybe a next step for you is to start giving and financially supporting the family here and helping to spread the gospel. Or maybe that greatest step of all, to really get rooted in the family of God is to join a city group. It's a big step. And God is calling many of you, I believe, to take that next step, to get rooted in the family by joining a city group. But here's what I would invite you to consider today. When God came to Cain, after Cain killed his brother, God said, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain in his rebellion and in his sin told God, am I my brother's keeper? What do you think the answer to that is? That was what got Cain in the place he was in in the first place, was thinking like that, was believing like that. And he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. If you're a Christian, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We need you. You need us. You need each other. The prodigal sinful son and the religious, jealous, older brother were still brothers. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit's power and through the love of the gospel, you would unite our hearts together. You would bind us together right now in Jesus' name. And so I just wanna pray Ephesians 4, two through six over us right now, God. I, God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit's power and because of the gospel, we would always be humble and gentle. We would be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of our love, that we would make every effort to keep ourselves united in the spirit, binding ourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. In Jesus' name, amen.